0: Hello, and welcome to Outward, Slate's LGBT podcast. I'm Jules Gill peterson coming to you live from the year 2024. You know, I managed, but kind of barely, to stay up to midnight on New Year's Eve. Um, And I did turn on Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper's Times Square broadcast for like all of five minutes at one point. I think it might have been out of like morbid curiosity, but y'all, it was... Too weird for me. Like anyone who's lived in New York, I've always felt stressed by the idea that like people show up to Times Square at 9 a.m. on New Year's Eve because they have to kind of stand around all day waiting and apparently, or at least allegedly, don't have access to bathrooms. So just know that like whenever I see these crowds in Times Square, even on TV, my bladder really starts dancing. And then there was just something about like gaying up that whole scenario with Andy and Anderson in front of 1 million product placements that took it to a whole new level of weird for me. Anyways, I hope whatever kind of holiday you had, it included time for rest and rejuvenation and that you're feeling ready for this new year. I'm so thrilled because today I'm bringing you an extra special episode where I'm sitting down with the one and only Raquel Willis to talk about her new memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation. You might remember that actually her book made it onto my gay agenda recently, and it was like a gay agenda I was making for myself. Literally, I needed to sit down and read this book as part of my gay holidays. So I figured why not share the experience with you all and invite Raquel onto the show to tell us more about her Remarkable Life journey and her fierce activism It's a really exciting and interesting and moving conversation. I know you're going to love. So stick around and I will be right back with Raquel Willis after this short break.
2: No purchase necessary for prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed
0: civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin.
2: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. out may 22nd wherever you listen if we lose here it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again like the drag queen say take out the earrings sharpen the nails there ain't no going back
0: welcome back listeners i think we all know raquel willis is the real deal You know her from earth-shifting activism in the service of Black and trans liberation, including the Signal event that was a 2020 march for Black trans lives in Brooklyn, where thousands flooded the streets. You also know her for her transformational journalism and editorial work, which among many distinctions brought the Black trans women and trans women of color leaders of the movement who are so often erased or just taken for granted to the pages of Out Magazine, where she served as executive director. Today, Willis is an executive producer with iHeart Media's first LGBTQ podcast network and the host of Afterlives, a podcast that treats the lives and the legacies of trans people lost to violence with the care and importance that they deserve. And on top of all of that, Willis has graced us with her debut book, a memoir entitled, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation, which gives us a chance to dig into some of the personal, creative, and political convergences of her life's work coming out of Augusta, Georgia. So Raquel Willis, welcome to Outward. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Of course, thank you for having me on well I'm thrilled
0: and i I've, i I want to kind of start where your memoir starts uh, because you share this really impactful story about the national women's march in washington d c in twenty seventeen where you were slated to speak and where your mic was cut off abruptly mm-hmm. in the middle of your address. And in that surreal moment, you describe how you had to channel an all-too-familiar and pretty unjust degree of composure, which is often demanded sort of silently uh, of Black trans women. And and you share this phrase uh, from the counsel that Janet Mock offered you in that moment. And it's it's one of the many lines in the book that's kind of seared into my mind. You talk about, quote, the resolve it took to control your own narrative. Mm. And in some ways... I'm wondering if that is the proposition sitting atop this whole book and sort of its urgent question for the reader. And so I'm kind of just wondering to get into this, like, when you decided to come to the project of writing a memoir, I mean, what motivated you to dive back again into that problem and possibility of resolve? I mean, what did you want to do or maybe do differently in telling the story of your life?
1: Wow. I think you're absolutely right. There is this dynamic of wanting to tell my own story on my own terms. Hmm. and that's really been at the heart of my career. I think the work that I do on behalf of trans folks and with trans folks is all about that because in media and and I have a journalism background so much of it is us in response or us Mm. defending ourselves against misinformation out there, disinformation, ignorance, hate, and the violence and, and so on. And it's so important for us to understand that there's power in our stories and there's power in us being able to, um, fully own our stories and and our, equip ourselves with the tools again to tell them tell them on our own terms. So that is so true with this memoir the risk it takes to bloom. I was really interested in sharing a black southern trans experience. I oh. don't think that we often get to hear particularly what That dynamic is like when I think about, you know, one of the last major Black Southern trans releases, it was really Hiding My Candy by the Lady Chablis in 1994. You know, so I was what three years old and I didn't know she existed until I I was an adult, right? So a good 20 years later. And so I just think about how much of the Southern narrative and place mm. has played a role in, and not only my story, but of course, just who I've become. So that felt important. Mm. Um, it also felt important to share the particulars around coming into my own with a black Southern and also Catholic family. Right. Um, there's so much complexity there. There's so much evolution. And I think when people hear, One piece of my experience, whether it's that I'm Black or that I'm from the South or that I'm Catholic, there are a lot of assumptions about what that experience was like. Yes, there were struggles, there were challenges, and that's true of anyone, but also there were opportunities for evolution and growth, especially with my family, and so that felt important to tell. And then in the latter half of the book, we really get a chance to delve into my story of, you know, being a a fully realized, whatever that means, Black trans woman trying to navigate the workplace Mm. and not just the workplace in corporate media, but also the workplace in small town, Georgia as a newspaper reporter or in nonprofits, you know, so I think that there was a lot that was interesting there. And I know for me as a young professional or someone trying to have a career, um, I didn't really have many narratives to bounce off of um, around being Black and trans openly in in that space. And that felt very important too.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's something I think a lot about in my day job as a historian, just noting you know, particularly for trans women, but most of all, Black trans women and trans women of color, how the decision to transition or to live authentically, you know, has just sort of structurally met being ejected from the labor market, not having, you know, not just work opportunities, but obviously so many life opportunities. But there is this generational shift happening right now, where we're seeing a lot more, certainly, you know, millennial and Gen Z, um, you know, trans women of color and black trans women, uh, uh, you know, finding a place for themselves in different industries in a wide array of walks of life, but without really any precedent. And I think that that creates such a I don't know, there are times that that just feels sort of like vertigo, right? I mean, in some ways, to me, it's like, yes, that's exactly why it matters to to write a memoir, even when, you know, you've got a lot of life left to live, right? I mean, I, I, I'm sort of curious about part of what you were saying there, because one of the things I think, you know, people will be so gripped by reading um, before we get into some of the actual stories is how you manage to pull off something really I think really hard which is being able to write for multiple audiences at the same time right you're talking about telling a southern black you know story of of your life Uh, And that's something that at at moments, right, as someone who grew up in Canada and someone who isn't black, (laughs) you know, like the, the pointedness and the vividness, the way that you told those stories was really like, impressed on me. But I also couldn't help but thinking, oh, this is also a story that like non-trans people need to hear or white trans people need to hear. Um, It's also a story that you're telling to non-trans people, you know, who are Black and live in the South, right? Um, Or who are Black and live in different regions of the country. I mean, is that something that was sort of on your mind or did it just sort of like come organically from writing? Because I'm just so impressed by that capacity to to tell your story, but in a way where different groups of people with way different like reference (laughs) points can understand what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, the pressure, of course, Hmm. is always there to as a writer, as anyone producing anything to be consumed, because that's a big part of this as well. Uh, that there is a certain amount of access that maybe what we consider to be the average person can have into that work. Um, And I guess what I came to in later drafts was, well, why can't the average person be a Black trans person? Mm. Right? Why, Why does it have to be... That I can only tell my story if I throw, you know, the encyclopedia of trans experience or black experience or southern experience at the world. Mm. That's not my job, right? My, my hope (laughs) is that people show up curious, right? Yes. And I can make decisions around, okay, well, what am I going to articulate more? And, and even when I try to articulate you know, what realness was or being stealth Mm. meant, um, or passing. I really wanted to insert a, a, an analysis that these are real dynamics that Mm. trans folks in general contend with. And also it's problematic as fuck (laughs) that we have to contend with some Mm. of these dynamics, Mm. you know, these dynamics that dilute what I consider to be the the more powerful, sacred elements of our transness or our difference. Oh. Um, so oh. yeah, in those moments, I might try to articulate more. But outside of that, I mean, I also benefited from the work that previously exists, right? So thanks yeah. to people like Janet Mock, of course, um, people like you and Susan Stryker and Julia Serrano, mm. Caroline Cozy, and then, of course, folks like Laverne Cox and Gina Rosero yes. and others. I didn't necessarily have to start at a 101 perspective. Mm. Um, there's a body of work out there that includes trans experiences. And mm. I'm hesitant to say a trans canon, right? Like, I know right. that there's a utility for that as a category and a genre in a sense I guess but I also think that um Hmm. that can be limiting because it it, 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 in the same way that if someone was like oh this is a black memoir it's like yeah and Right. It's all, it's multiple things, right? So only say it's a Black memoir or a trans memoir or a women's memoir if you got a comma after that descriptor (laughs) and you're including these other pieces.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and I think that's one of the exciting and maybe startling or provocative and like usefully provocative takeaways is that like, I think sometimes you know, the project of trans inclusion as it has been sort of packaged for a wider world presumes that you just have to input this one new word and understand it and add it to the tapestry of what you already know. But actually, it's more exciting. <laughs> it's more interesting. And it's more complicated. So maybe I want to dive in a little to the to, to part of the book where you talk about your college years uh, in Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just riveted about how you tell the story of your time um, in a drag ensemble that that played a pretty important role, it seems, in how you sort of found yourself, but also then how you started claiming different aspects of your voice. So could you just tell us a little bit about, uh, about this piece? Uh, you know, performance group, Misters not sisters. Uh, but bo- both, maybe some of the people who shaped you, but also maybe just tell us a little bit about how performing drag, how becoming, you know, Rebel DeVoe played a role in coming into your womanhood. Because I think that that's a story about about trans womanhood. That that. I don't know. I just think people are getting more and more anxious about understanding because mm-hmm. someone said that drag does not make you a woman, you know, like, anyways, I don't need to repeat all
1: of that, but, <laughs> but tell us, tell us a little bit about that time of your life. Yes. Well, I always knew that my experience in drag could be weaponized against me right? mm. to kind of chip away at the validity of my identity, my experience, my womanhood. Um, but. Yeah. I mean, I found drag in college. So after kind of coming from this Catholic
0: <laughs>
1: Southern upbringing in Augusta, Georgia, and I'm hesitant to call it conservative because I didn't really come from a conservative family in the way that we kind of think about conservatism in the United States. Like my parents were very democratic. I mean, and we can also jump into, you know, the Dems not really being as liberal (laughs) as many would love for them to be. But I, I think in this context of blackness in the United States and in the South, Yeah, by some standards, there's conservatism there because we were religious Mm -hmm. and there wasn't much understanding of queerness and transness. But we're also talking about the first decade of the 2000s and -hmm. the late 90s. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of the way it was across the board, right? Let's not Mm -hmm. just pick on my Southern Black family. So then, so that's one piece, Mm. but finding drag at the University of Georgia. Um, was such an opening for me because it was the first time I was able to understand or at least experiment and play around with gender. That weirdly on the stage behind this persona became a safe space for me to explore gender in a way I never had a chance to. Um, I I knew I was some kind of queer because I came out as gay at 14. It was a whole thing with my parents you can read the book if you haven't but (laughs) it's it's there but finding drag and finding other folks who were fucking with cis hetero gender norms was such a revelation for me I saw so Mm. much power in it Um, and I think the interesting thing is being on stage while it was fun and it was a release Coming off of stage and having to de drag in a way Ooh. was probably the more revelatory part with mm. it. oh, I can't move through the world owning this feminine power mm-hmm. just as myself. It has to be behind this like mask of persona right. um it ha it just i I can't own this feminine power. Just moving through the world as myself, it has, it can only exist behind this persona and I can only be expressed Mm. that way. And that was a problem for me. So I loved, I loved my drag experience. I loved, you know, meeting trans men in particular and drag kings and lesbians. And that was kind, that was my kind of atypical coming into my transness. It was like, I actually Mm. didn't have much access to other trans women and trans feminine folks in this Athens, Georgia college experience. It was mostly trans men and trans masculine folks and cis lesbians.
0: Well, we'll dig in more to Raquel Willis's formative years in Atlanta, right after this short break. I want to talk about Atlanta uh, because you know we got. It. I, I've been I've been blessed to spend a little bit of time there in recent years, uh, and uh, it's an amazing place. But it also played such a pivotal role in some of your political blooming. You know, both it, it seems like around abolition in particular, um, but also this kind of increasingly important um, precept that you are working with in concert with others, which is that queer and trans people. Already are at the heart of black liberationist organizing and movement work like they're already there doing so much work, just not always necessarily getting the degree <laughs> of credit or even, you know, embracing all of the ways that that they might lead a larger movement. Um, and, you know, just broadly, right, the black radical self does not get, you know, near enough credit that it that it deserves for <laughs> all it's doing. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you think back on, on your Atlanta time, I mean, what are some of the causes or actions you were a part of or the people you work with that you think sort of left their
1: strongest mark on you or, or their strongest mark on your politics? I s- did a bit of activism in college. Like I was involved with the LGBTQ student groups in Athens, Georgia. Um, but of course, this was in a collegiate context. And um, And a very white context. So moving to Atlanta um, about a year or so after graduating from the University of Georgia really immersed me in this wider community of Black feminists, Black queer and trans folks. And on and on. Um, but I what was kind of the mm. inciting moment that pushed me not only to come out professionally as trans, because I started my career not being out in my first job, um, was the death of Leela Alcorn. And so so that unfortunate suicide and the posting of her letter on Tumblr after the act was committed really changed my understanding mm. of my place in the world and, and you know, my mission yeah. started to form around, well, how can I use my career, my work to improve the lives of other trans folks, particularly trans youth, trans girls and women, particularly ones we've lost too soon. Mm. And so that brought me into more of these activist spaces in Atlanta. And I learned so much more than I ever could have bargained for, because this was also a time where the movement for Black Lives Mm. was um, becoming more visible, at least Mm. in the mainstream. This was about 2014, 2015. And so I met folks through the Racial Justice Action Center, um, which... Had a program for trans leaders, an internship Mm -hmm. uh, with a group called Solutions, Not Punishments uh, at the time, Coalition, but now it's collaborative. Um, And so there I was completely radicalized around the experiences of trans folks being harassed by police, um, the experience of folks um, being incarcerated, um, learning about figures like Ashley Diamond and Kai Peterson, Black trans folks who had been um, incarcerated and dealt with the brunt of the carceral system, and luckily are still with us today and... And out and about, you know, making their stories known and living their lives. So that was important to me. Um, I also learned more about reproductive justice work and movements from groups like Sister Song um, and Southerners on New Ground. So there was this beautiful kind of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And that, again, turned all of these ideas that I had around my own liberation being somewhere outside of the South on its head. And I was able to kind of understand, oh, actually, there's an inherent power to the folks fighting here, even if they don't always get the platform or the shine that other places do because they're allegedly progressive pearl spaces, as we say. So that was cool. a a major turning point in me reclaiming and seeing the power of my southernness, mm. because I saw these people fighting so fiercely mm. for folks on the margins.
0: Mm. I I kind of want to indulge in a little question about form um, as well. I mean, you mentioned you know Lila Alcorn, um, you know, who's one of the people to whom you you write a letter um, in in the uh-huh. book, and there are at different moments a series of letters. Um, often addressed to people you know who have been lost uh, including lost in very close to home in your life but also in the community there's also a couple different references to you, going back to diaries and um, I think at mm-hmm. one point early on you know in a pivotal uh, a pivotal you know evening with your with your parents you like went and wrote down almost like a transcript of, of their reactions to your coming out um, yeah. and and I'm just sort of curious about some of those different writerly choices. Uh, you know, one, just sort of curious about the process. Like, did you, to? because I always think like, when I try to, I don't know if this is just like my particular version of my, <laughs> of my journey into womanhood is like, I can't remember a lot of things from when I was young enough. Mm-hmm. Oh, d- did you go back to old diaries to reconstruct kind of your memory, but then actually, what did it feel like to sit down and get to write especially those letters? Because there you get to choose your words now with a kind of hindsight. Uh, and I imagine, but I'm curious to hear that maybe that allows you to say things now that you weren't able to have said at the time, kind of in that that initial raw power of loss. Uh, and I'm just curious, like, what, what did that feel like? Uh, or, or what are some, of, what's your takeaway from that? Because there's something, I mean, those letters really like, whew, they they get you when you're reading it. I, I just, I'm just sort of curious what that process was like for you.
1: Absolutely. Well, that epistolary approach mm. really came about pretty organically, I I believe. I mean, I, the first, fully-fledged chapter that I wrote of the entire book was that letter to my dad. Because I knew that that was going to be the most difficult thing to write. And it it wasn't a letter at first. So I should be, I guess, clear about that. But the chapter itself, I it, it was written um, with as many details really? as I can wow. remember. I mean, that day of hmm. his death, from a stroke it was just etched in my mind so I had that um and then I also just realized that at the heart of that letter and then the letters to other trans folks we've lost too soon was something that was always Mm -hmm. missing was how are we impacted by these losses With my father, it was a bit more nuanced and complicated because I really wanted to process that weird feeling of like sadness, mourning and grief, but also relief Mm. from not having to live up to a lot of his or contend with a lot of his expectations around me growing up to be a black man you know, in a particular type of Black man in our society. So that felt important. Um, and you're absolutely oh. right that the the letters give gave me a chance to kind oh. of break tone a bit and insert a little bit more of oh. where I am now into the processing that was happening at the moment. And then what came later was figuring out, okay, I've got to do all of that in the letter and continue to move the story forward. So there was more remixing that came from the later drafts around, okay, can I move this forward with you know some of these pieces that are in the next chapter? Can I just insert that into the letter? How do I do that, and and just try and, and relive literally those moments where I was, mm. and I was inspired, of course, by people like James Baldwin, right? Like, yeah, James Baldwin is writing, mm. um, uh, in Notes of a Native Son to, um, his nephew, and of course, Ta Nehisi Coates is writing to, um, his son in Between the World and Me. And then more recently, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, and then also thinking about, like, well, Seeley writing to Nettie in The Color Purple, of course, because that's in the zeitgeist right now. And so what does it mean for me as a Black trans woman or someone at that point in the story becoming a Black trans woman to write a letter directly to my father about Mm. why there was always this unspoken struggle between us even though there was so much love and understanding so that was important with Leela, I was contending with being a trans adult who felt helpless and like I hadn't done enough to improve conditions for her. And what does it mean for me to have ancestors that are younger than me? Which is a weird thing, I think, for any of us to to contend with. And then with Chyna Gibson, it was about the guilt of being a Black trans woman who... Sur- was surviving this world and what drew me to her story was that we both were scheduled to have um mm-hmm. bottom surgery and in- within the weeks of each other right and so I thought about you know maybe in kind of like a you know the, I I believe it's Langston Hughes this kind of the dream deferred like dynamic what does that feel like it feels fucking weird and it feels like there's shame and there's guilt. And also how do I relinquish some of that to live my dream? Right. Um, And then with uh, Lailene Polanco. Yes. There was a sense of duty now with this executive editor position at out magazine and this platform to, show up, right? So there is a bit of a trajectory, I think, between the letters. And then, of Mm. course, we kind of end with a letter.
0: Yes.
1: um, And welcome to the garden and the epilogue to everyone, really. Mm. I mean, particularly future generations of queer and trans folks. But I think definitely folks living in the now in a time where we have really had to understand Mm. that progress is not linear at all (laughs) (laughs) right right but but in that
0: way that that i mean it's so beautiful to hear you articulate that arc for the letters because that does bring us to to where you know the memoir the memoir ends but it's not the ending and there's something you know i don't know it's like I, i i think probably because i'm the same generation of you and like Know, a lot of the cultural references and, and historical beats are, you know, I remember being around, you know, the same same age at the same time. I, you know, kind of get to 2020, you know, get to the march in Brooklyn. By that point, I had left New York, but I remember just being glued to my phone. I mean, I knew a lot of people there that day too, and just like listening to their their testimony of what it felt like, and having that that feeling that you that you share of like, well, this is it. I mean, this power has risen and it can never be put back down. And then and then the pivot into the epilogue to say, okay, but here we are. Here we are. <laughs> that revolutionary pulse is not gone, but it has not. Its greatest dreams have not been realized either. And there's something really important about that. And there is a way that I was like, oh, yeah, this is why it has to be a memoir that doesn't end with... And then at the age of 120, I, you know, went for a nice sleep at the end, right? Like, like, it's ending in this political note. And so I want to give you the chance to, to take us there to, 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 to wrap up our conversation. But like, if this book's ending is in some way, perhaps, you know, part of the new beginning or new chapter in your life, I mean, what's next, but, you know, I asked that in the sense of like, what do you want to come out of? the power of that day in 2020 uh and since you know it's successive iterations what do you what do you see next uh for yourself in concert you know with with black trans people's collective future uh you know as we know (laughs) what's coming down the pipeline it's not going to be very much fun
1: (laughs) yeah oh (laughs) Wow. I know.
0: Just a real easy question for you. Sorry. I I, I walked
1: you right. I lured you right into that one. No, you're great. (laughs) Um, I love it. The main gist that I try to leave people with is that the idea that liberation is this particular thing and it's going to look like everything being answered, All, all questions being answered, all dissent being silenced um is an ideal. And a lot of folks in previous generations would probably say, you know, we won't have li- we won't see liberation in our lifetimes. And I hmm. I think a lot of us hear that and, and there's a sense of sadness or a sense of grief because we won't have, you know, our perfectly configured life. Um, And I don't think that we have to think about it that way. Um, I think every generation is called to figure out how to continue this larger collective march towards liberation. And also we are called to figure out how to build liberation into our everyday lives. So what are the ways that you can divorce yourself from these systems of oppression, divorce yourself from these forces, these voices that tell you you're not enough, you're not full, you're not a whole human being, you're not sacred, you're not beautiful, you're not this or that. That is a part of the liberation work to me. I also think that revolution isn't a one-time thing, right? It's a culmination of all. Of all of these different revolutionary moments. And that's essentially what my memoir was about in my coming into my own and my blooming was actually all of these moments, all of these places I've been, all of these people I've uh, loved and interacted with and lost have culminated into this blooming. Yeah. Also, blooming isn't a one time thing either. And so we're called to continuously take risks to see if there's something better on the other side. So that is there. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, you know, what I hope to accomplish with this book is what other folks did for me. I I think each generation is called to plant their own seeds and leave the soil richer for the next ones to do, do with it, whatever they want. So the Marshas and the sylvias, they didn't have a chance or the access to write memoirs. Right. But they planted these big ass seeds. Did they not? I mean, I, we would not be in conversation with each other with the strides that they made with fewer resources than we have, right? So that's important. Um, yeah. And I hope that the, the next generations can do even more than, you know, we ever could have dreamed as well. That's right.
0: So do I. And just what a what a beautiful parting sentiment to think that, it's not just a tragedy that's taking so long to get to the real good part of the revolution. It's that, you know, each generation is building something on top of the prior one and things, you know, things are moving, uh, and, and they will continue to do so. I mean, I could talk to you all day. Uh, <laughs> and I just want to say to listeners, like we have only scratched like the surface of what is a really compelling. And just like, I, I had to like, once I, once I opened the first page of this book, like I had to, stop everything and, and until I was finished reading it. So trust me, listeners, you're going to want to go out immediately and get yourself a copy of The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation. Uh, and Raquel Willis, thank you so much for for taking the time and for, for sharing uh, all of your insights and, and wisdom with us today
1: of course thank you for having me and thank you for your work and contributions and i'm excited about your next release too oh thank you <laughs> that's <so sweet. laughs>
0: well that's about all the time we have for today but as always please send us feedback and your topic ideas to outwardpodcast at Slate.com or reach out to us over on Facebook or X or whatever at Slate Outward. And just a reminder, if you wanna join Slate Plus, you can get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. If that sounds promising, you can always check out slate.com slash Outward Plus for more information. Our show was produced by the Fantastic Palace Shaw. If you like Outward, please do subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. And in the meantime, bye y'all, stay gay.